This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. So what are the fabrics of the future and what is the future of the textiles industry here in Victoria? From sustainability to innovation through to manufacturing. And how important is the textile industry to our economy here in Victoria? Does it get the recognition and the support it deserves? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, Bronwyn O'Shea. As always, Bron, joining us from ABC Wodonga. But today, I'm somewhere a little different. I'm mm. in Geelong. I'm down at the pop-up radio station here on the waterfront in Geelong today. So if you're in the area... Pop by, give us a wave. But Bron, it makes a lot of sense for us to be in Geelong today because Geelong has a deep and rich history of textiles going back like 150 years, but also, and as we'll learn today, the incredible work and innovation that's happening as we speak. Yeah, and when we think about that classic phrase that Australia was built on the sheep's back, you know, the wool industry has been a huge part of the development of our nation and our nation's economy. But, you know, in the same way that the auto industry has had its challenges locally, um, the textiles industry has, has had the same challenges. And where once we saw lots and lots of mills all around the place through regional Victoria as well, um, that's not the case anymore. And textiles is not just an industry that's important for the city. It is has been and has been for decades so important to regional Victorian if you think about and it's again, it's not just the wool industry. When you look at the fabric industry and dyeing, all of the houses, all of the jobs that are associated, and that did die off as you made the comparison to car manufacturing. But it's coming back and it's coming back in such an innovative way. And it's happening to wool as well. The wool industry is really having a moment. We're going to learn so much about it today in a high tech. You know, when you think about high tech, you don't think wool. You think that classic old woolen jumper that you're going to have for lifelong and that will get passed down and will get passed down. But wool is so innovative. And I dare say a lot of people will be surprised today when they think about wool and what its future is. But do you, Bron, consider the fabrics when you're buying clothes, either for you or for your kids, which I think is very different when you, we talk about small people that trash clothes in about two seconds. <laughs> yes. Do you think do you think about the fabrics that you buy? I think about it a lot more now. Now that I'm in my 40s and, you know, I guess once upon a time you didn't have the money or perhaps the knowledge to think yeah. about investing in forever pieces and I'm definitely at a point now where I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to save up and I'm going to try and invest in things that are made well, that will last and ideally are made not in a fast fashion way but in a really ethical and sustainable way. And um, That's the dream but, you know, it, it's not cheap, Rochelle, either. And so I think that's a big challenge is for people who maybe want to do their best in that regard, mm. you know, you need to have the money to be able to do it too. So today we'll look at where innovation and sustainability cross over and where affordability comes mm. into that. So do you care? Do you think about the fabric that you wear? Do you pay attention to where it's made, how it's made? Do you pay attention or do you just not care less? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt with you from Geelong this morning. We are down on the waterfront as a part of the ABC pop-up. As always, Bronwyn O'Shea joining you from ABC Wodonga as we talk about the future of fashion and textiles, as we talk about sustainability and environmental concerns that people have and the innovation. Chris Hurran joins you. He's the Associate Professor in Textile Research at Deakin University. First things first, thank you so much for having us in the beautiful Geelong down here on the waterfront. It must be a lovely place to be able to work and never get sick of this view, Chris. Well, it's a spectacular place to be. Unfortunately, I'm out at Warren Ponds, which is a little bit further removed, but we've got the beautiful fields and uh, the farmland jutting the, the university, so it's really good. When we talk about the textile industry, a lot of people would immediately think the fashion industry, but textiles is far bigger than fashion. So textiles is huge. If we look at it, it can be everything from what we're putting underneath the tarmac in our roads to stabilise them so they don't fall apart, to um, car wheels, it can be composites for bonnets, it can be the filters in a car 
And then clothing is a massive component of what we have, but textiles is a very large part of our daily life. I have never thought about it playing a part in what's underneath the road. Yeah, well, it's really, really common now. If you've got a really unstable road surface, um, textiles are being used more and more, geotextiles, to reinforce that. And then that stops that road surface from breaking apart and potholes forming. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, there's not a chance I would have thought of that either. When we're talking about innovation when it, with textiles, what are you at Deakin University, what are you working on at the moment? What are some of the groundbreaking research that you have? So we have research in a huge number of areas. We have uh, quite a large number of students and staff working on everything from future fibres through to motorcycle clothing, through to um, composites and other textiles, specialty coatings. But most of what we do has this circularity flair or this, this trying to reduce the impact of textiles on the environment in that research. Our number is 1300 774. You can text as well, 0437-774-774. Mug's called from Castlemaine. We're really covering every part of Victoria this morning. Good morning, Mark. Do you think about textiles at all in your daily life? I do. I mean, I've always, through my whole adult life, um, I've only ever worn natural fibres, actually. I'll only wear cotton or um, uh, wool silk and uh, mostly because they feel better. I just feel better in them. But the thing I really wonder about is um, wool. We have such wonderful wool in this country and yet when you go shopping for it, you can't find it easily. And uh, or if you do, you find it coming back to us from a fibre that's been made overseas. I don't understand that. Well, hopefully we'll be able to put some of those questions. We'll have the Director of the Australian Wool Innovation Body joining us today. And we've also got the Director of the National Wool Museum here in Geelong, Mark, that will be joining us today. But can I ask, Mark, when you're thinking about what you're buying, do you find that affordability comes into it? Oh, look, it does. And I think that what we were saying before, it is a bit more expensive to wear, I guess, natural fibre sometimes. But do you know what, Rochelle? I wait till they're on sale. <laughs> a good woman. <laughs> Sales are the best. And then mark. I buy it and keep it. <laughs> Thanks. Thank, thanks for your call. Chris Huron, you know, when we think about sustainability and environment and the environment, I think a lot of people now, and for the first time, understand where the textile industry comes into landfill and the huge amounts of landfill that the textile industry does produce. And that's where the fashion industry probably does have a lot to answer for. There is fast fashion has gone through the roof compared to mm. when we were growing up. You just wouldn't have had the sort of seasonal drops that a lot of big fashion retailers have now. Do you think there is a wider understanding of our own personal impact and footprint that we have when it comes to the clothes that we choose? There's starting to be more of an understanding that the impact of what happens at end of life for clothing, um, there, there's still a big problem in that it's really, really hard to deal with end of life clothing. You've got to take all of the buttons and other embellishments off it before you can do anything with it. And then you've got to be able to sort it. And we get more and more complex blends of fibre. Instead of just having cotton or wool, we've got polyester, cotton, acrylic, lycra clothing because someone's put them all together, which then makes it really hard to, to recycle them at the end of life. So there's potential there. It's just how we, we dig into it and start to design clothing that can then be recycled mm. at the end of its life. Chris, you mentioned things like future fabrics and, and some of the other work that you're doing there at the university. What are some things that you're working on that might surprise and delight us around innovation in textiles? Well, even if we look at the, the previous thing that we're just talking about, I've got two students. One is working on composting cotton and understanding what happens to the dye the, yes. that are in cotton when you compost it. I've got another one that really come out of that landfill idea, looking at how cotton breaks down in soil and again are there dyes that are good are there dyes that are bad because we can see giving information on that well the answer is yes some dyes are good and some aren't and i mean that's where we need to look at the sort of dyes that we're using and what we're making dyes from 
So at the end of their PhD, we hope to be able to look at the synthetic dyes and say these are the ones we need to avoid, these are the ones that are quite good, and we'll also be able to look at some of the natural dyes that are out there as well. Lots of questions on whether or not we need to have conversations around just how hard it is to manufacture locally and why we're doing so much of it overseas. Sure, surely we can find a way. And others saying that the manufacturing industry and the textile industry died because it just became too expensive to be able to do it here. Things aren't getting any cheaper, Chris, when we talk about being able to bring back the textile manufacturing world here to how it once was to its heyday. How possible is that? So I started off life in the textile industry. I was a dyer, um, so I made things change colour. If we look at the mills I worked in when I was younger, they were very old and very antiquated. I go through mills now that are very modern, and if we have modern mills, it's not that expensive. The biggest um, threat we have facing the textile industry at the moment is power and energy. The cost of that is quite large. But again, we have the potential in Australia using solar power to be able to um, generate our own power to, to, to make these textiles. And this then makes it more affordable because roboticism has taken away that labour cost uh, in what we do. This, my daughter did textile design at university. There were absolutely no textile design graduate jobs when she completed her degree. So she had to go overseas. Several of her uni mates didn't want to go overseas and now have jobs, but not in the textile field. All the jobs were five years experience. Plus, we need more graduate positions. There were also only five people in my daughter's course, and that's from Mary in Ballarat. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt in Geelong with you this morning and Bronwyn O'Shea joining you from ABC Wodonga. Andrew's called from Upper Fern Tree Gully. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. How are you today? Good. And you actually work in manufacturing, is that right? Yes, we manufacture um, sports paddings, um, crash mats and all those sort of things for gymnastics and things like that. And we're finding that, that a lot of the textiles, the industrial textiles, are very, very hard to find that are manufactured in Australia. So we're really reliant on imports and it would be really nice to see Australian mm. manufacturing picking up um, again to replace some of these imported products. What textiles go into something like a crash mat? So basically a PVC, a polyester, uh, a PVC um, fabric. So same sort of thing you'd see on the side of a truck, on a, a, um, the side curtains on, a, on trucks, on roads. Yep. They use a heavier grade than we do. But um, it's that PVC coated polyester scrim um, fabric. And yeah, there's, as far as I know, there's only one manufacturer left in Australia that manufactures that product and we actually buy from them. But even other sorts of textiles like woven webbing and things like that, we buy from a Melbourne company that makes textiles um, in webbing. But there are few and far between and a lot of those, um, those sort of textiles we have to get in from overseas. There's lots of nodding happening from you here, Chris. I mean, I mean, I think that's incredible, Andrew, and hats off to you that you're trying really hard to buy that locally. But sometimes, Chris, you just don't have those options. Will that change, do you think? It is changing. So there is a company that I know from Sydney that's in the process of acquiring a piece of equipment to, to replace their, um, their offshore production of textiles to bring them onshore because during COVID they had trouble in getting supply material. Uh, there's a company that I visited in Gembrook not that long ago that has an incredible non-woven line that I didn't understand had, had just appeared in Australia. It's been here about one, one and a half years. So there is investment starting to happen in these spaces. You, it's interesting you mentioned COVID because I guess that was an opportunity where we looked at what we make locally and what we don't and what we're hugely reliant on imports for. Do you think that is going to... Um, you know, change the, the perspectives or the approaches that we take around textile manufacturing here? It, it definitely had a big effect on, on some companies because they, they had stuff coming in from China and they just couldn't get it. And mm. so they're then looking at how they, they bring it back on shore. But then we have the little tiny companies that are looking at how they can become circular and become green and they want to be able to do that in their own home because it then 
or their own location because it mm. then cuts down the kilometres that the textile is travelling. Does there need to be more support and does there need to be more government intervention here to support these industries? Because so often the textile industry is forgotten when it comes to its importance in the economy. And if we see during the pandemic again, when we saw the list of really important workers that were needed and who was on that list, guess who didn't make the list? It was the textile and fashion industry. And yet the amount of jobs and the amount of money that it creates. So if you're a small company and you want to make sure that you're circular or you want to create something that you know local manufacturers are having to go overseas for, should it have government support, do you think? There's definitely support starting to happen, um, but there's it's like anything, there can always be more support. Um, and, and we look at it, during COVID, we could make masks in Shepparton. Yes. But we couldn't make well, the... Well, save fa- that company, okay? So he nearly yeah. went under... But, and he was having to sell it off and then it was the masks that kept that company alive. But but we couldn't make the fabric that went into the masks oh. here in Australia. Mm. So <laughs> that was the problem that, that he was facing. Gosh. He could make these masks, but then he couldn't get the fabric to make the masks. So the, it, there's definitely holes in the supply chain yeah. that need to be filled. Uh, and one of those, for instance, is a ragging machine. There is one or two companies with ragging technology to be what able to... What does that do? It's shredding waste textiles into their individual fibres. There's a couple of them around, but there's none that are really designed for getting textile fibres back to a point where you can put them back into processing again. Most of them are for the technical textile area rather than... So things like mattress wadding and chair filler and things like that. There's none that can take it back to a fibre that you can then put to a spinning facility and make a yarn out of. Chris, my son's pretty good at shredding fabric if whoever needs somebody. <laughs> Dolores has called from Doncaster. Hi, Dolores. Hi, how are you? Can you hear good. me? We can. Yes, I just want to uh, say that I'm a great supporter of wool and Australian wools. I even buy wool from Switzerland with Lang Yarns when it says Australian Merino wool. And recently, Hedrena, who is... Uh, Western District Company was created and used to make clothes was taken over by Fella Hamilton and when they sold it I said um, I'll buy Hedrena if you have it made in Australia and not made in China I wrote them a few months later they told me it was now made in Australia because I wasn't the only one who requested it oh wow Isn't that amazing? Dolores, stay with us because let's bring Patrick Fisher into this conversation. He's the director of the National War Museum here in Geelong and lots of nodding and uh, I guess sympathy to Dolores's point there. But how great that a little bit of I'm going to write that letter and I'm going to tell people how important Australian wool is to me. I mean, the king now knows how important Australian wool is and has been a long campaigner for Australian wool. Is it changing? Are we starting to understand it a bit more, Patrick? I don't know if we're if it's changing and we're starting to understand it more. I think we're starting to embrace it a little bit more. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head a little bit earlier when you said that um, for a long time wool was looked at this as this kind of nana's thing. It was it was another generation's product. Um, you know, I think the 1970s have a lot to answer for in lots of things, whether it be um, um, chemical-based manufacturing of uh, textiles or food or plastics or any of those other kinds of things. You know, plastic is the future, Joel. And, um, but I think that now there is, when we look at sustainability, which is really a much broader, it's, it's more than just the environment. Sustainability is, is, a, is a systematic and sustained look at how we live our lives and the impact that uh, the, the things that we do. Um, when you look at that as a, as a, in a broader sense, we think, oh, you know, wool really is a, it's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of the oldest... T- um, domestic sheep are one of the oldest domestic animals in the world and wool has really been at the forefront of innovation for thousands of years whether it be knitting or weaving or fire resistance or um, you know make do use up or do without uh, the, the reusing of it so and I think people have finally stepped back and said oh wow you know um, grandma and grandpa and people they were right they really knew <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dolores have you always been a huge fan of wool where did that come from for you well as far as i'm concerned uh i have this attachment with the western district because i was from overseas and i came to australia with my friend who was an australian exchange student to my school anyway what it is is that wool to me is so strong 
the first Hedrena uh, top I bought was in 2007. And I wore it every week to work because it looked good under my suit. And I'm still wearing it. And so now I have like maybe 12 of them in all different colors. <laughs> but, and they nothing, nothing is as good as wool. And I made my grandchildren these uh, single bed blankets, crocheted, and I used the Bendigo wool. And they just love it. But it takes a year for me to do it, of course. But I really want wool to be um, worn more. And of course now, even my little grandchildren also like the merino wool undergarment that I buy from MacPack or Kathmandu. So I love the um, passion that you'll be passing down to your children as well, Dolores. I mean, Chris, the history of wool here in Geelong, it runs deep. Well, I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for wool. So the first place that I worked at was a small vertical wool spinning facility and I was the dyer in there, but I did pretty much everything and I learnt so many things from that boss. My second job was um, dyeing Hadrena wool fabric, um, which is quite funny when uh, it comes up with one of the talk. Yeah. Um, people. Um, we used to um, uh, bleach it or dye that really fine knitted wool that they used in their underwear and wool is such a technical fibre it, it has so many abilities to be used in, in anything from undergarments to, to outer garments and, and if you look at waterproof wool that's even happening now, it, it, there's quite incredible technology in it. And that's something I'd like to ask more about, Chris, in your work is, you know, we tend to think of the, the cosy woolly, woolen jumper or the, the blanket, the nana blanket over your knees at night, which I love to do. But wool is being used in really creative and innovative ways, you know, in, in hiking, in sports, high high performance sports gear. What are some of the ways that wool is, is reinventing itself, I suppose? So we use that example of waterproof wool. Um, what they do is they, they stretch the wool, they weave it, uh, and then they shrink it again. And then that's permanently set in that really tight form. And the only way the water can get into your fabric is through the wool, through the individual fibres, and then back out through the next and through the next to get into your body. And wool itself, um, in its natural form, is hydrophobic on the outside edge. So the wa- mm. it's really hard for water to get in. If you take one of your really old jumpers from many years ago and pour a bit of water on it, mm. it'll be five or six minutes before the water will penetrate into the fibre. So if you've got water getting on the outside and it's got to go from fibre to fibre to fibre to fibre to get into your body, it, it gives a natural waterproofing that is breathable in the other direction. Patrick, when you walk around the National Wool Museum, of mm. which you're the director here in Geelong, how do you see the timeline change from its beginnings through to now? Oh, you mean the the total story mm-hmm. of wool? Well, um, you know, first of all, acknowledging that we are on Wadawurrung land, and you know that this community has a sixty thousand year history in textile making, um, you know, weaving and possum skin cloaks, but into wool, um, you know, that came in here. Um, look, I think I, I see it change in terms of. Um, it's a really hard question to answer. You know, it it's. I, I think I it's, guess it it's, just it's keeps reinventing like, itself. It does keep reinventing itself, and that's kind of the conversation that we're having. You know, we talked a little bit before about um, the affordability of these kinds of things, the affordability of fashion, and when you and uh, when you think of um, uh, stories of it takes a long time to knit something, mm. but but um, you know, I have blankets that were my grandmother's. And I have a, a suit that was actually my father's. It's a 50-year-old suit, and it still looks great. And it's and it's wool. Um, and so, it, but and it's not just wool. I mean, if you take care of things, cotton can last a really long time as well. Uh, but but I think what has changed is the way wool is used. It's extraordinary when you go to some of the mills now and you see just how fine it is. When you when you think of really really fine Australian merino wool, mm. uh, 14, 15, 20 microns. That that's how thick the fiber is. The average human hair is about 60 microns. And if you think about how thick that is, and then you talk about wool that's 20 microns, and then when you stretch that, it, just what Chris was talking about, you stretch it and then you put it back together. It's really, really fine. And you can get a very, very thin fabric that's lightweight, it's breathable, it's water-resistant, it's uh, heat-resistant, and, and that's, I think, where things have changed, how people think about it. Mm.
On the Conversation Hour, we are talking about the future of fabrics and textiles in Australia, where once, you know, we were um, built off the back of the, the sheep and now we're seeing, you know, perhaps a, a dip in local manufacturing of textiles. Um, are we set for a comeback? Uh, what is possible as we look at the way that the industry is innovating and what place can Australia play in that? Let's head to Kay in Preston. Morning, Kay. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm in my early 70s. And I was brought up to school and, in fact, went to the Geelong Knitting Mills years ago, bus tour for the schools to see how it was um, such a busy industry. But today and from the 80s, you have the term investment dressing. Um, that is, you buy one or two good things, look after mm. them, get repaired, and that includes um, boots, but um, wool. And I still have my great-grandfather's woolen underwear. It's that old, <laughs> but it's... It keeps you warm uh, mm. from underwear through to a lightweight jumper of this and then to an overcoat. And, and I think we're probably moving back hand. to that Sorry? now as well, aren't we? I think we're, we're shifting back to that, what once seemed as an old-fashioned concept. And for many of us, our hands have been forced when we look at just how much pressure we're all under financially, the rising cost of living. And when we talk about being able to buy new clothes, you still need that money up front, though, to buy that big piece. But, I mean, there's texts here saying, Rish and Braun, I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old son, 90% of the clothes that he wears are from op shops. I'm pregnant with my second son. I'm not going to need any clothes for him for the next three years, says Kate. And others talking about how they are big fans of merino wool and wearing them as base layers, but they find with its fineness, it can be prone to small holes. How can I stop this happening? So that's a question from Heather in Pasco Vale. But lots of people thinking about their own footprint, their own impact on the textile and fashion industry. And I think that's been a big shift mm. in, in how we live our lives. Patrick, would you agree? Oh, very much so. I mean, with, the, with social media and with the awareness of what's going on in the environment, uh, you know, the fashion industry has a lot to answer for, as much as I love the fashion industry. I mean, 20% of all wastewater globally is due to the dyeing process alone. Um, so that's a huge amount of um, resource that is used in it. And I think people are really aware of that. And there is a, a renewed sense of, you know, what I said before, make do, use up or do without. And there, there are lots of individuals, uh, small designers, individual designers, small fashion houses that are looking at how do you repurpose these things? It's not necessarily recycling, meaning tearing something apart and redoing something with it. How do you upcycle? How do you make something new out of something old, for lack of a better way of putting it? And I think that, that, that people are looking at how can they do that themselves mm -hmm. and how can they support individuals who are working in that space, very much on a local economy kind of way. Alistair is at Mornington. Welcome to the Conversation Hour. <laughs> Good morning. It's Alistair. You're on air. What did you want to say? Uh, look, I, was, uh, I heard the comment that no one in Australia is recycling and uh, waste of... of garments we are we take garments destined for the uh landfill and basically repurpose it all the way through to yarn and knitwear is that a complex process alistair how, how have you gone about making that possible i've had machines custom designed wow and uh, uh yes it is We've been doing this now as a mill for more than 20 years, and we've had to innovate over that period of time to always try and improve the product to, um, you know, meet the market. And uh, we've create our own yarns. Uh, we specialize in alpaca and the more exotic fibers, but we do merino. And we process it all the way through to knitwear at this point, and we are developing new product ranges all the time. And Chris, I mean, when you hear Alistair's story, does that excite you? I mean, is this, the, is this the future where people like Alistair will go, okay, well, it currently doesn't exist, so I'm going to create it, so I'm going to make it myself? It's definitely very exciting. It's getting more of Alistair's. It's having 10 or 15 of them because if you look, he's, he's handling a small amount of our textile waste. It's getting the ability to handle large amounts because so much of it is still going to landfill.
Our number's one three hundred triple two seven seven four. As we talk about the textile industry in the future and the innovation and the sustainability of textiles, in particular wool as well. Andrea's in Castlemaine. She says, I feel like I have wool in my blood. I was born in Geelong. My paternal grandfather was an engineer at the Federal Wool Mills and my maternal grandmother was a store manager at one of the mills on the waterfront. I only wear natural textiles but have a particular soft spot for wool. I always look for wool in op shops. I will darn, repair and I will repurpose wool. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. And inspired by the history of textiles and wool in Geelong, where I am today as I watch the ferry pull up here, actually, on the waterfront in Geelong. Bronwyn O'Shea is joining you from ABC Wodonga. And here with us in Geelong, we have Chris Curran, who's the Associate Professor in Textile Research at Deakin University. Patrick Fisher, who's the Director of the National Wool Museum here in Geelong. And we welcome Michelle Humphreys, who's the Director of Australian Wool innovation. Michelle, a warm welcome to you and I believe you're out and about and potentially in a wool shed and all surrounding yourself with wool innovation as we speak at the moment. Is that, am I correct? Yes, yes. I'm uh, currently doing a job um, in uh, the Monero region at, at Cooma in southern New South Wales and doing an artificial insemination program for um, a farm down here called Greendale for the McGuffick family and this uh, region here, it's got a strong history in wool and, and one, this farm's typical of the farms in this area where they're family owned and they're, they've got a, um, you know, their focus is on wool growing. Michelle, we've been hearing some terrific things about the way that you know, the wool industry is innovating and, and the different uses and the adaptability of wool. I wonder how um, influential is consumer demand and how much impact does that have on the way that you are thinking about wool into the future? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about um, you know, ethical wool movements and people wanting to know it's Australian grown and Australian made, um, you know, the different demands that consumers are placing on their expectations for wool. How's that shaping things? Uh, well, it's shaping it um, very strongly because, you know, the whole focus on sustainability, um, uh, AWI and the Walmart company have got, we've got lots of brands and retailers coming to us um, to, to work out how they can incorporate wool into their products so that they can demonstrate to their customers that the company's got a focus on sustainability. And uh, yes, the customers are increasingly looking for um, garments that, that contain natural fibres and, and wool is one of those and with high performance as well. And, I mean, just listening to how and why people love to wear it, as I literally watch people step off the ferry today, and it's pretty cold out there this morning out on the water. I could imagine having a nice woolen jumper as you're commuting maybe from Geelong to Melbourne. Wool would certainly come in handy. But, Michelle, I guess over the last couple of years in particular, like so many other industries, we've seen a huge shortage of workers and there are just not enough shearers and a lot of work being done into the promotion of trying to get people into that industry. How has that impacted wool and wool manufacturing and just the amount of, um, I guess, wool being produced with the, lo- the, the, the sorry, the lack of shearers that we have? Um, well, we're, yes, we're still getting the wool off sheep. Uh, the sheep are being shorn and we're, you know, doing a, a big job in training more shearers and looking at other ways to get wool off the sheep um, so we can keep this going through the, the pipeline and turned into nice woolen garments. When you say other ways to get the wool off the sheep, what, what's being done there? Uh, well, we're looking at a biological defleecing method um, where um, the, the, the sheep will be injected with a, a, a combination of amino acids which will upset the balance of the amino acids in the sheep and that will cause a break in the wool and then the wool will be able to be easily removed by some mechanical means that doesn't involve a, a cutting handpiece. And is and that yeah, t- yeah. safe and, you yeah, know, ethical? Uh, yeah. Well, the, the, trials, the research work is still being done and, of course, you know, nothing's released until all the testing and approvals are done. So they're just at the research stage of this. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're hoping it will go very quickly because there's a... 
a, a big demand for you know an alternative to, to shearing. Wouldn't that be a game changer if farmers didn't have to get in line for the shearing crews to come and you know if, if it was a really quick and easy process? Oh, it will be. It will be a, a definite game changer, and, and farmers will be able to determine exactly when you know this year's fleece ends and next year's fleece starts by this injection, and then the the wool the fleece will stay can stay on the sheep while the break's there for, you know, up to 10 weeks. So you give them the injection, you don't have to pull the wool off tomorrow. In fact, it's best not to, so there's a little growth of wool to protect the sheep. And you can take the fleece off, you know, at any point going mm-hmm. forward. Patrick? One of the things that, I, that we have found interesting in the work that we've been doing recently is there was a bit of a dip the last few years in terms of people leaving the land and leaving agriculture. But certainly post-COVID and, and even just before that, the younger people are going back to the land. Mm. They're, they're more interested in small, small agricultural farms, whether that be microherbs or sheep farming. But there's also, there seems to be a growth in younger people who want to be back on the land, particularly with sheep. And astoundingly, not astoundingly, but one of the more beautiful stories about that is the, the growth of women in mm. the industry as well. It used to be predominantly a man's uh, industry, but there's a huge growth in women who are shearers, who are, um, uh, you know, roustabouts and, and uh, classers in the wool industry. And I think that that's, there's, a, there's a huge potential for growth in that area. Is that something you've witnessed, Michelle? Uh, yes, yes, certainly. And I'm from my hometown is Jerildry, um, sort of in the riverine of New South Wales. And just in our local area, we there's sort of just been in the last probably five years a, a, a big sort of move of the next generation coming back to the farm. Mm. So yes, I, I'm certainly seeing that. Michelle, as we talk about, I mean, obviously Australia's got this incredibly rich history with wool growing and export. As we look at what wool might, well, the wool industry might look like going forward, what role is Australia playing globally in future thinking for wool? Oh, a, a, a huge role because we, we, um, you know, we provide the majority of the world's uh, apparel wool. So we, and we've got the, you know, same wool innovation that I'm on the board of. Um, we are a research body, so we provide the research, and that's not only for wool growers with on-farm work. A, a lot of our work, and this is something that wool growers probably don't see, we do off-farm. So it's working with innovations in the, the processing side of things and the product development side of things. So we work with um, you know, brands and retailers, but we also work with companies that make the machinery for spinning and, and weaving and work with people that dye wool, for instance. So we're, we're sort of driving innovation in the whole supply chain. Um, and that's, yeah, like I say, that's giving new processes and it's also giving new products. And and the driver of of that is sustainability. The sustainability and the processing side of things. Um, People want um, more eco-friendly ways to process wool. Um, And then on the product side of things, brands want natural fibres in in their products. Mm. Michelle, thanks so much for your time. We know you've stepped aside and it's a part of your busy day, so we appreciate it. Thank you. Michelle Humphreys, the Director of the Australian Wool Innovation. And, Patrick, when we talk about wool and sustainability, I mean, you're running a, a, a big campaign at the National Wool Museum when it comes to sustainability. Uh, we are. We just launched our We the Makers, the Sustainable Fashion Prize, and uh, that is part of the redevelopment in the future vision of the museum, looking at what is the next 30 years of, for the National Wool Museum as we um, expand beyond wool fibre textile in this museum for Geelong. But the the Sustainable Fashion Prize is global. We're asking anyone who is an emerging or an established maker or designer in the fashion industry to take a look at what is sustainability and um, submit their garments for this. It's a $10,000 prize for that. Um, so it's a rather rich prize, mm. but it is it is drawing on Geelong's deep roots as a fashion and innovation city and it it goes hand in glove with our UNESCO City of Design designation as well. So taking a look at what is really good design. Judging by your accent, 
<laughs> not from Geelong, not no. from here. Where, where no. does, uh, what's your story, Patrick? My, How did you come to be here, be so passionate oh about the, this industry and <laughs> be able to, you know, wander the waterfront here in Geelong? Uh, well, first of all, I will say Geelong is an amazing place to live, uh, work and learn. Um, anyone who's ever stood on Eastern Beach and watched the sunrise knows that it's really a spectacular place. Uh, I grew up in New York. I'm from New York, um, the Hudson Valley, just outside New York City. Um, and I do not actually have a wool or a museum background, um, <laughs> but um, my my partner is from Australia, so I moved here 12 years ago um, for love and stayed here because it's really quite an amazing place to live and work. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be brought into the National Wool Museum to run it as a as a cultural destination. So you do things for love and everything works out okay, <laughs> <laughs> it? Does. We are going to talk more about the fashion side of textiles in just a moment, but Ophelia has called from Box Hill North. Hello, Ophelia. Oh, hello. You wear wool? Now, I think wool is a wonderful fibre, and in fact, one thing I'd like to mention is that for, well, over 40 years, I used to sew, and it made stunning evening wear. Because I used to be able to make stunning dresses, for example, out of a wool crepe. You'd throw it in the back seat of the car, you'd take it out, and it would look brilliant. You'd be on stage with your beautiful dress, and no one would know that it was on the back seat of the car. <laughs> wool just, it just hangs beautifully, it drapes beautifully, it, it wears well, the colours are always really strong. It looks one, it, it, it is my, it, it's always been my fibre of choice. I've got so many questions around why you need a, uh, an evening dress and a ball gown oh, last well, minute that happens no, to be no, on the well, back seat of your really car. A, well, it was sort of like it was sort of like a you know well if you're conducting you don't want to wear well I didn't wear a, a male suit so I used to wear a stunning black dress with a, ah, you know, a, a conductor big of flow course. at the back yes and so I used to wear I used to make them out of wool crepe because the wool crepe you knew it, it's so beautiful to work with it's got the drape. It's it's a natural fibre. It looks stunning. It's and the idea too, when you're fabric. the nervous sweats kicking, anyone that works <laughs> oh, in any breathes. kind of performance, yes, right? You breathes. sweat like crazy. Yes. Yeah. So it I'm breathes. presuming wool would be good. Wool is fantastic. It breathes. It's wonderful. Rochelle, and I hear people. Think, yep. I was just going to say, if nothing else, we have found the most incredible um, wool advocates during this last hour, haven't we? <laughs> They're everywhere. Chris, I mean, are you yeah. prone to having just some wool garments in the back seat ready to go at any given moment? <laughs> well, not, not quite so much, but I do do a lot of hiking and um, wool will hold up to 30% of its moisture without feeling wet. And so it can absorb that sweat and it... By absorbing the sweat, it doesn't have the build-up of um, protein on the surface, which then gives you the smell you get out of a polyester shirt um, over time, the BO smell or the, the, or the really And also, too, then, once it cools down, if you're... I'm not sure how we started talking about sweat, right? But it's important, and we all sweat. <laughs> so especially if you're hiking and exercising, it's one thing whilst you're moving to be sweating and it might cool you down and it's the natural... Um, you know, reaction that you need, but then there are periods where then you're just cold. So if you're hiking, you don't want to be damp the entire time. Well, that's the beauty. When wool absorbs water, it actually generates heat, um, very small amounts of heat, but still generates heat. And because the water is trapped in the fibre, it doesn't feel wet on the skin. So you don't get that cold, damp feeling when you're hiking or when you're doing any form of sports. We're seeing more and more athletic gear, which mm. is wool. Mm. And then if we look at the real dress formal gear, Wool is a natural permanent press product. And so if you iron wool, it will retain that. Even if it's put away in the cupboard for a period of time, it will retain that permanent press mm. appearance. Mm. Ophelia, are you still conducting? Yes. No, I'm not. I, ha I have retired. <laughs> Okay, I just, no, I'm I mean, no longer. But but the dresses still look good. I was about to say, I bet your dress hasn't retired, though. <laughs> That's it. No, well, no, I don't have the opportunity to wear the dresses anymore. But you know, but that, but they, you can you can take it out, and twenty years later, it still looks fantastic. You know, well, a woman it's just who's beautiful to work with. I love that. I love that vision. A woman who's probably nodding away is Dr Alice Payne. She's the professor and the dean at the School of Fashion and Textiles at RMIT. Alice, please tell me you've got a crumpled up woolen dress in the back seat of your car ready to go at any given moment? Well, funnily enough, I'm actually wearing a wool blend dress right at this minute. Um, completely unplanned, but um, yeah, a happy coincidence given the, <laughs> the topic. <laughs> um, the industry, you know, has... 
I guess it's associated with glitz and glamour and, you know, we think of high-end fashion or fast fashion, but just how important is the fashion industry and the textiles industry to the future of Australia's economy, do you think, Alice? Oh, it's quite an extraordinary part of Australia's economy. There was a report from the AFC um, last year that really looked at, you know, it's a $27 billion um, industry across the economy, not, you know, only clothing, but throughout the whole textiles value chain. Um, and it also, it's a, it's a massive employer as well. Um, and alongside, it's actually um, a significant export industry for Australia. In fact, double the exports of um of beer and wine which is often surprising to people yeah we had a a a text earlier from someone who said that their daughter trained in textile design but couldn't find a graduate position so that you know all the roles that were out there um tended to be asking for five years plus experience so she ended up working in a overseas and some of her friends had to go you know outside of the textile industry altogether is that a challenge as we go forward It is a challenge and we have seen over the past 20 years a real shift, um, as you may have heard from um, previous speakers, a a real shift in um, the the textile industries onshore. And we we are seeing that the companies remaining, um, you know, have found their niche, which is vital. Uh, As we kind of look ahead, though, and as we think about, you know, how we transform to a circular economy for textiles, in other words, keeping materials in use for longer and recirculating them, we really need those um, textile design and manufacturing capabilities back on shore. And, and skills is a big part of that. Alice, stay with us. Mario's in Baldwin. Good morning, Mario. What did you want to say? Um, I was just interested in what you were saying about um, waterproof wool. It uh, made me um, uh, think of... I'm, I've been a fan for a long time of the Pendleton woolen uh, shirt company in in America, in Oregon. And I've got a number of these shirts, but there's a famous shirt that they made made and still make called the board shirt, which was actually got its name because they, because surfers in the probably 50s, early 60s would wear these shirts into the surf because they were sort of partly waterproof, but they would keep people really warm in the cold water and um, sort of without uh, having access to a uh, wetsuit. Isn't that so, incredible um, when you think about going in and surfing? But, I mean, Alice, is that something you can speak to when we think about how certain fabrics are used and in what context? Who would think of, you know, wool and surfing? I mean, surfing's always been leading when it comes to fashion innovation in terms of what we wear and how we wear it, but also in the actual fabric. Yeah, well, the very nature of the wool fibre means that, you know, it's um, hydrophobic in in some conditions. And then as you heard from the previous speaker, you know, it will um, have that, um, it will absorb and hold that moisture so that, you know, know, for example, when I went to a tropical climate for a few weeks with only carry-on, all I took with me was um, was three merino wool shirts. And that was why, you know, they stayed cool. You could air them um, even in, you know, sweaty environments. Um, It is a remarkable fibre and that's the inherent to the nature of the fibre itself. Alice, one of the big barriers that we've talked about across the hour is is cost and, you know, often these incredible and long-lasting garments come with a fairly significant price tag. Is that going to change as we see, you know, advances in the manufacturing process and, and maybe smart technology being applied? Potentially so. I think what we have to remember, though, is that clothing's never really been as cheap as it is now in the entirety of human history. Mm. In other words, and, and also it's so cheap perhaps because the environmental costs and the human labour costs are not properly accounted for throughout the whole supply chain. So um, it's, a, it's a bit of a, um, a, an illusion, if you like, that you know we, are, we do have very cheap clothing at the moment. Um, but if those costs aren't accounted for, it, it may have to rise. It's really thinking about how we um, have a kind of per-use model. How, how many times are we using a garment over its lifetime? Is it used for 100, 200, 300 times? And then you start going, well, it's more expensive as an item. And yet over time, yes. 
Um, cost per wear. Actually, That's how I justify it to my husband like, all the likewise. time. Likewise. <laughs> and to myself. <laughs> cost per wear. Per wear. Per wear. This is a bargain, is what I tell myself. I'm still wearing it. Look, look, I'm still wearing it. Just finally, Dr. Alice Payne, I mean, you mentioned there the human cost and the human element to this. And this is something that we haven't really had time to look into today. And, you know, when we look at the cost of living at the moment and just how hard it is for people to make ends meet, what concerns me is people may not want to pay that ridiculous $3 for a T-shirt from some of those big stores that we all know where there may be question marks uh, around how humans overseas are being treated in order to make that particular garment. But what choices do people have now? And you've got school uniforms, you name it, just those cheap garments. How do we stop that? I mean, how do we... I mean, sometimes pieces that are new from big chains are cheaper than the op shop. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the way to think about it is that we're not only talking about what a garment's made from and how, we're talking about how it's used over its entire lifetime. So in other words, a big part of that is the decisions that we make as wearers and how we care for our clothing. So no matter if your t-shirt costs $3 or $200, you can still care it and love it and value it um, as valuable materials. So, you know, encouraging repair practices celebrating when things are old and worn because it's a sign that, you know, you're really um, caring and you're really extending the life of it as long as possible. That speaks to a value shift that we can undertake as a society where, and, and I in my wardrobe myself have, you know, the $3 t-shirt or the t-shirt from the op shop, but I've had it for 15 years and I have, you know, done some visible mending to it and I have worn it with pride. So it, it's, um, it's also about the practices that we as wearers um, engage with in our clothing, um, that you can have a, a low-cost item, but if you love it for a long time, it, it still retains its value um, in your wardrobe, yeah. Dr Alice Payne, thank you so much for being part of our chat today. Professor and Dean of the School of Fashion and Textiles at RMIT. Just in the minute or so we've got left, I'd love to ask um, Chris, in part of, as part of your research, I know there's lots of work being done around sort of smart fabrics and wearable electronics and all that sort of, of thing that can actually use fabrics and the things we wear in really smart ways um, medically and, and for our health. Can you give us an idea of where that's headed? There's definitely a lot of work happening with this, whether it's measuring pressure of people laying in a bed to make sure they don't get bed sores through to clothing that can measure how long it takes for a wound to heal or how a wound is healing. Wow. There's lots and lots of work occurring in this space. Uh, but um, it, it, it's an area that's really important, but the circularity is, is one of the most important spaces we're seeing people want to research. And we've got a future fibres um, uh, hub with the Australian Research Council with a number of manufacturers because they're really interested in how we get that circularity and, and, and um, lowering impacts on textiles. So. It's interesting, isn't it, when you say the word textile, people think fashion instantly and yet, as we've learned today, it's so much more than fashion and the future of it can actually come down to our health and how happy and healthy we are. A huge thank you for hosting us here today and letting us come to your home city of Geelong. Chris Huron is the Associate Professor in Textile Research at Deakin University. And also a warm thank you to Patrick Fisher, who is the Director of the National War Museum here in Geelong. So if people want to come down, maybe jump on the ferry, as we've seen today, they can go to the War Museum, they can wander along the foreshore here. And it's been great to be able to look back and see where the history of textiles in Geelong came from in the future that it is heading in. Bromon O'Shea uh, in Wodonga, as always, thank you so much. Thank and you. to talk a little bit of fashion today, it's, it's always good to justify yeah. our purchases somehow. I'm going to go out and find myself a, a woolen gown after this. Bromon O'Shea, as always, joining us from ABC Wodonga. Thank you. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Thanks, Geelong, for hosting us until tomorrow. Take care and speak soon.